The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, moving on up, moving on out in the Champions League. Who's looking like leaders? Whose performance was worthy of the conference? Plus, a whopping weekend in the Premier League. We talk fixture times, your pick of the kickoffs, creepy gloves, how many Gunnosaurus, and much, much more in this Totally Football Show. Thursday, the 6th of October. Welcome, listener, to this Totally Football Show. Looking forward to this. We've got Duncan Alexander with us. Hey, Duncan. Hey, James. Mm. Also, Jack Lang returning. Hello, Jack. Hi, James. Mm. And Michael Cox. Michael. Hi, James. Hello to you all. And hello, listener. Today's the day, 6th of October, that the Totally Football book is out. They say don't judge a book by its cover, but you could do worse because it's got a lovely cover. Lovely cover. Somebody compared it to Dazzle Ships, the seminal orchestral manoeuvres in the dark OMD album from back in the day. But yeah, it's some pretty interesting. More like OMG in... when you read the content. <laughs> Thanks, Duncan. What kind of content would people be reading in there, Duncan? Uh, I did a thing using numbers, obviously, um, to work out the most average player. Not worst, but average player in the Premier League last season. So. Right. It's a fun journey to a, you know, hopefully exciting slash unusual destination. Absolutely. And there's uh, all, all your favourites from the athletic stellar stable of uh, sports writers in the Totally Football book. Anyway, uh, super for us today. We're going to be talking about round 10 of the Premier League season. It features Liverpool Arsenal and whatever. Holland and company do to Southampton. Uh, but uh, shall we begin with the, the Champions League, which was rocking our world on Tuesday and Wednesday evening? What caught your eye? Was it was it the fact that the only two teams yet to drop points or even concede a goal are Bayern Munich and Bruges? Bruges, you beat Atletico Madrid 2-0. Woof. Was it perhaps inter-manager Simone Inzaghi with that meme-tastic, uh, we've been busted sideways glance? when VAR were, were checking that handball shout for the Barcelona penalty, which, you know, bizarrely, they decided actually was totally fine and handle away, Dumfries. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a proclaimer style. It's good. <laughs> handle away, Dumfries. <laughs> yeah. Was it big wins for Premier League sides, mostly? Liverpool 2-0 against Rangers, uh, Man City 5-0 against Copenhagen, and perhaps most impressively, Chelsea 3-0 against group leaders Milan. Spurs only managing a 0-0 at Frankfurt. Or was it perhaps, he said, moving on, Napoli winning 6-1 at Ajax. Was it that? Yeah, I think that was a standout win. I mean, I've seen a few 6-1s before. I can't remember many 6-1s where the losing side go 1-0 ahead. So that was particularly exciting. And yeah, for Napoli to be top of that group, plus 11 goal difference. I mean, they've absolutely battered all three teams they've played. Uh, I believe James Horncastle claims they're the most exciting side in Europe at the moment. Playing the best football in Europe. Okay, mm. yeah, near enough. Uh, yeah, I think on the basis of that performance, I'd have to go along with that. I mean, it, they are just playing fantastic football. And football that feels quite uh, typical of their manager as well, of Spalletti. I mean, the, the I think it was the third goal they scored last night with Zielinski running through when Raspadori came short and then he had four players bursting past him. Uh, reminded me a lot of his Roma side, reminded me a bit of mm. his Zenit side. And uh, yeah, it was great to see. They're, they're a really, really exciting team. And that's not an easy group. I mean, Liverpool and Ajax are in the same group, but they're absolutely breezing it. Yeah, it's surprising as well. Very much at the start of the season, the narrative was about how many players Napoli had lost. Spine of their team and all that. Koulibaly going to Chelsea. Kim's been a wonderful replacement. But up front, Dries Mertens, who's kind of the soul of the team and an Insigne, an emblemic player. But I wonder if Insigne moving on has just taken a whole load of baggage away. The, the, the refreshing of their squad has, 
has just lifted a lot of the maybe some of the issues that that were hanging over that team in terms of underperformance in past seasons. They they certainly seem to be playing with wonderful abandon. Ajax, meantime, absolutely smashed in that game. They the previous biggest number of goals they'd ever conceded in a home game in European football was four, six in this one, and uh, a season that had started so brightly for them is uh, looking a lot less shiny right now. Yeah, it was their biggest margin of defeat since losing to Feyenoord in the 1960s. So it is pretty much unprecedented in the in the modern era. And um, Napoli, the first uh, Italian team to score six or more goals in Champions League games since Juventus back in 2003, which is obviously an entirely different era. So it's a statement wins go. That is that is up there. Certainly was. Uh, what else caught you right, Jack Lang, midweek? Well, sporting goalkeeper Antonio Dan, with perhaps like the worst individual performance I've seen for quite a few years, spectacularly bad. Um, beyond that, I think Dortmund looked quite good. It caught my eye just how ropey severe are actually these right. days. Like it's you looked at the starting lineup and it's like it's very uh, it's very please take my dinner money and thank you for this beating. Like it's just kind of. <laughs> so little physical presence in their side it's like it's you could you would struggle to pick like a, a less imposing team than like Isco, Suso, Tellez, a 34 year old Ivan Rakitic, a 36 year old Jesus Navads and two 20 year olds I'd never heard of at centre-back um, so yeah the mm. fact they got spanked was not entirely surprising but Jude Bellingham looked very good in that one I thought. Yeah, 4-1 that finish to Dortmund in Sevilla on, on Wednesday night. And uh, straight after the game, Sevilla announcing the departure of their manager, Yulan Lobotegui, which had kind of been in the in the works since the start of the season and has had some impact on, on the kind of atmosphere and morale of that side. Georges Sampaoli, or Jorge Sampaoli probably, uh, is due to take over. Also midweek by Leverkusen. Decided they'd had enough of losing. They're no longer using... Their manager, Gerardo Suane. They got beaten by Porto. Excitingly, Xabi Alonso is the man they're choosing. Alonso, who spent three years as manager of Real Sociedad B and had a pretty terrific record there. Who's excited by that? Well, I think he's going to do really well and then the club will try and replace him with Gareth Barry next summer. So uh, we'll see how that goes. (laughs) Interesting. You heard it here first. Uh, Bruges. I had a listener asking, can you please explain Bruges? They're the first Belgian team ever to win their first three games of a Champions League campaign. There they are. They, they've beaten Porto 4-0 away. They beat Leverkusen at home. And this week they beat Atletico Madrid 2-0. Crikey, Michael, how impressed are you by Bruges? And their manager, Stoke legend Carl Hofkins. Going into the group, I thought, well, that's a pretty evenly matched group, but I'd be fairly certain that Bruges will come bottom and it will be between the other three sides. So I was completely wrong on that. But yeah, I'll have to have to check them out um, in the next couple of games. I think it's quite a, a couple of kind of outsidery sides doing well. I mean, sporting atop of Group D um, as well, ahead of Tottenham and Marseille and Frankfurt. And Benfica as well. I fancy Benfica might be a really good side. I mean, I think I'm right in saying until this time last week, I think they had a 100% record in the league and in yeah, the Champions League. Um, yeah, they won drawn... 13 straight games and then they drew at the weekend yeah. against Gimaraes and then drew 1-1 with PSG on uh, on Wednesday night. Yeah, I saw the second half of that game I turned over from Chelsea and they were very much holding their own against uh, against PSG. So, it's, And also Salzburg are atop of their group as well. So, I mean, often we go into the Champions League and I'm kind of thinking it's, it's so difficult for, the, for, you know, teams outside the elite countries to compete. But that hasn't really been the case so far this year. Um, I don't know if there's a reason for that. Maybe the pack schedule is... Would that benefit them? I, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it's mm. just a coincidence, but uh, it's good to see. Yeah, Giovanni von Broncos of Rangers fame, certainly saying after match day two, well, there's no way we can compete with these clubs without hundreds of millions of pounds, but uh, sites like Bruges seem to be giving the light of that uh, belief. Bruges, who, to explain your expectations for them had lost before this season their previous four Champions League games and conceded four goals in each of them at least four goals sorry in each of those four games this time around yet to concede a single goal and topping that group as you say crikey Inter Barcelona finished 1-0 to Inter 
I guess the big talking point there was a pretty extraordinary VAR performance. VAR, who had uh, first off disallowed a Barcelona equaliser for handball, then when late on in the game, Dumfries, with a pretty much equivalent move handled, uh, took a long look at it and went, yeah, nothing to see here. Yeah, I, I, it was one of those classic things. I think the decisions individually, you could kind of see why they were made, but the combination of them, I think, is uh, yeah, a little bit tough to get your head around. It wasn't a good midweek for uh, people who didn't like Pep Guardiola saying Joe Hart's kicking wasn't good enough uh, for the modern game because he presented Leipzig with a really good chance, like literally 30 seconds after they'd had a, a goal pretty harshly ruled out by our VAR friends. So um, it's rare you see hubris delivered that quickly in a football game, but, but there it was. I also like that game because the, the combination of Celtic's goal, the assist to the scorer was Kyogo Jota, which was close enough to Diogo Jota for me <laughs> to think it was quite funny. Nice, nice. Also in action this week, Premier League sides with some mostly big wins. Let's get on to them and, and our league next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. All right, Premier League, match day 10. No Friday night game, nor a Saturday lunchtime game. There is a Monday night game. It's Forest again, this time up against Villa. And there is, bizarrely, a Sunday 7pm fixture, Everton, Man United. Mm. There's also a 4.30 Sunday afternoon clash and it's a cracker it's Arsenal against Liverpool woof for Arsenal a huge test of who they are for Liverpool 11 points back from the Gunners but with a game in hand it is an absolutely must win affair if they get three points here and uh, beat Man City next weekend who knows where they could be what do you think uh, imagine lots of you saw Liverpool's performance against Rangers don't it? you'll probably not be able to speak about it though because you'll be silenced as Trent critics <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he can score free kicks. I don't think anyone's ever doubted he's very good at free kicks. He played an interesting role. I thought he was quite cautious early on, then was pushing forward a lot more. I mean, the interesting thing really was about Liverpool's system. They did change to just playing two central midfielders and played a fourth attacker. I think Klopp and Alexander-Arnold after the game both called it a 4-4-2, uh, mm. which was interesting. I would have I would have called it more of a 4-2-3-1, but yeah, kind of same thing. I'm not sure they will stay the same for the weekend. I think they'll go back to the 4-3-3. I could be wrong. But I, I think their the change of system was probably not just about their previous performances, but also about the fact they're up against a Rangers side who were playing pretty deep, playing a back five. It meant that their two central midfielders had to come a long way up to, to close down Henderson and Thiago in that created space higher up the pitch. Um, that said, both the goals came from set pieces or well, a free kick and a penalty. So they weren't at their fluent best. Um, but yeah, obviously important for them to get the win. I think one of the things about that system, it you know, it does have its benefits. But I, I thought Mo Salah still looked very just stationed too far from goal for for my liking. In that you know, if you've if you've loaded the centre with Nunez and Jota and, and Diaz, I think was kind of coming inside even more than Salah was. Salah was kind of picking the ball up in areas where you know he can hurt teams on the touchline. He is you know he can do typical winger things as well but I just thought the congestion in the middle kind of uh, meant that he was just slightly uh, yeah on, on the fringes of the game at times so whether that's in this system or you know reverting to a midfield three the kind of the combination play with that with Alexander on, on that side hasn't been quite at, at the level it has been in recent seasons and yeah that would certainly be my priority if I was Klopp at this stage, is getting Salah more involved in more central areas as he has been in more recent seasons. Mm. 
In terms of the performance, I mean, positive night for Liverpool. We did see them previously beat Ajax at Anfield and a lot of talk of them getting their mojo back and then they were all over the shop against Brighton after that. So what do you think? How much are you seeing positive steps from from Liverpool? I mean, it was a win and a clean sheet and that I think the clean sheet's probably more important in some respects than than the win but as Jack was saying I mean the average positions of the players Salah's right stuck out on the wing and the other three forwards are sort of clustered together in, in the middle they had they pushed Simakas really high up um, in the game which they're probably not going to want to do it away at Arsenal I mean I don't want to be like Neville Southall to Michael Owen but you were playing against John Lundstrom who you know struggled in the Premier League a couple of seasons ago so I don't think you can read that much into this and I think they're, they're going into a into a arena if you want to call it that or stadium probably mm. more accurate um where the atmosphere is brilliant at the moment everyone's really up for it you know we saw um tim said on monday's show about the you know how impressive the atmosphere was ahead of the spurs game i think it will be as good uh for this one as well so um I could, you know maybe even better given it's later in the afternoon you know arsenal haven't kept a clean sheet against liverpool for 13 games in the league which is a a long time, but I think this is the first time in a long time I can remember, you know, Arsenal going into this game as as the definite favourites, and I think Liverpool will be, I think they'll be quite cautious uh, early on because if if Arsenal score early, then it it could get pretty bad for them. Liverpool have actually won their last three visits to the Emirates without conceding a goal, but as you say, a lot of positivity around their hosts this time around. Michael, where do you think this game is going to be won or lost? Is it going to be a targeting Trent affair? Um, maybe both the fullbacks, I would say. I think the way that Arsenal play down the flanks at the moment is quite impressive. They made inroads in the second half against Tottenham when White pushed on and Saka could come inside. And I'm not quite sure what Liverpool are doing at left back. Simicast has been playing a lot. I think he's okay. I'm not sure he's the strongest defensively. Um, so yeah, I think down the flanks will be the, the main issue. I mean, Gabriel Jesus has been fantastic this season, but I think maybe against these Liverpool centre-backs might have to play a little bit more of a decoy role. Um, and yeah, it's in the flanks, both flanks, I think, where Arsenal can cause problems. Gabriel Jesus with a terrific record against uh, Liverpool as a Man City player. Scored or assisted six times in eight Premier League encounters. Numbers-wise, Duncan, am I right in saying that this is the Premier League's faster starters against the Premier League's slower starters? Yeah, Liverpool would be almost in the relegation zone if only first halves counted this season. Um, it's also the... Where would Arsenal be? Uh, top. It's probably. a trick question because they're yeah, yeah top of the table, just mm. top everywhere. I mean, it's also these are the two teams with the most touches in the opposition box this season. Um, Jesus has got the most individually, and Salah second. So they're both teams that you know progress into attacking areas with relative ease. Um, and I mean, we've said this before on the pod, but of all the kind of big six clashes, this tends to be the most sort of guaranteed entertainment one. I, I can barely think of a bad game between Arsenal and Liverpool, which is funny because if you remember the late 80s, early 90s, these games were pretty rubbish. I remember Liverpool once playing six defenders away at Highbury in a, in, in that grey kit that everyone mysteriously likes, even though they hate at the time. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It's like the it's the really good 4.30 slot. It's the best slot of the week, statistically, as well. So, um, yeah, it should be a classic. Can we hear best... more about that, please? I did a I did a study of kickoff times and then looking at different things like you know expected goals and shots per game and stuff and basically four thirty Sunday and half five Saturday now are the best ones and obviously yeah oh. they tend to get the best fixtures but they are quite you know it's quite extreme uh, how much kind of more exciting they are so right bring on. what what what's the worst one Duncan uh, Tuesday quarter to eight pretty much but Tuesday and Wednesday nights everyone thinks because they've been Big sports night has confused them from when they were kids, but um, it's not true. They're they're low scoring and often not that good. Is your sample size big enough for Sunday seven pm, which we have this weekend? Sadly not. So it's a, that's going to be a huge boost to Everton and Man United players, knowing that they can really mm. shape history uh, on Sunday night. Mm. Well, it, it kind of does tally with. I mean, footballers often say that they don't like playing early games, right? Because they have to eat weird food for breakfast, and they're performing in the mornings or at lunchtime, doesn't really work. Which I always think is funny because if you're an amateur Sunday league player, pretty much every game you've ever played is kind of before lunchtime at a weekend. So that's probably what's been holding us all back, just the kickoff time, really. 
<laughs> Arsenal. I've got a Thursday night fixture uh, before the Liverpool visit. That's against Bodo Glimt. That's at the Emirates in the Europa League. A reminder, of course, that Liverpool, after this one, will be facing Rangers in Glasgow next week. And then it's Man City at Anfield the following Sunday. Mm. So a momentous 10 days or so for Liverpool. Speaking of Man City, they are just a point behind Arsenal, poised to take the lead if the Gunners should slip on Sunday and if they should happen to win against Southampton. Mm. City, of course, coming off that 5-0 against Copenhagen. Two goals for the big guy, the big fella. He came off at half-time, not injury. He's keeping him fresh for the weekend. Duncan, his numbers? I mean, they're stupid, aren't they? I mean, he's now only 27 players in Champions League history have scored more than him. He's scored now 1% of all Manchester City's Premier League and Champions League goals in their entire history. Mm. Um, he's already scored 11 goals from inside the six-yard box this season, so I'm not sure what the all-time record for that is, but... He's it's on, put it that way. All right. So um yeah, good. He's quite good. Nineteen in twelve in all competitions this season, twenty-eight in twenty-two in the Champions League, which as you say, that means only twenty-seven players are ahead of him and he's played only twenty games so far in the competition. <laughs> it is remarkable. He's got a goal per game record in the Champions League of one point two seven. Ooh. Uh the other goal scorers, by the way, on Wednesday night were own goal, a penalty for Mares, and Julian Alvarez. Hmm. City across their last two games have scored 11 goals Haaland in the Premier League is on three straight hat-tricks and next up they've got Saints but Jack before you come in with your nine goals lols both Premier League meetings last season between Saints and Man City ended in draws how did that happen and could it happen this time I don't think it will happen again no I I think City are perfectly positioned for this I mean they they are just demonstrating that momentum is kind of a self-fulfilling thing because they have started so well in the Champions League. They can rest Kevin De Bruyne for a game like this. They can take Holland off early. Um, so as you know, as we get into the very densely packed schedule before the World Cup, they've already given themselves the gift of being able to do that. Whereas you know the other supposed title contenders are not really going to have that luxury. So, yeah, the fact that Holland has had a little rest coming up against a fairly fragile defence. I mean, Southampton, they're the kind of team who can still, you know, two or three months into the season, pick a player in defence that you didn't realise had signed for them. And that happened last weekend. They've got Duye Cheletakar, the Croatian. Had no idea he was there. Just pops up, plays fairly averagely. And I think, yeah, they don't have too much protection midfield. They kind of lack a physical presence in there so I can easily see Kevin De Bruyne leading City to another charge basically I, I, I mm. can't really foresee anything else but a, a fairly commanding victory there yeah possibly Haaland with his fourth home hat trick in a row that would be remarkable is this going to be rough Hasenhutl's last game with Southampton that seems to be the the word yeah it sounds like that's possible and um, it's yeah, probably the worst fixture if you are trying to keep your job, isn't it? And I, I do think, I mean, we probably talk too much about the the nine nils, but there is something about Southampton, the way that they play, the way that they What's want this? to press. <laughs> the, they do seem to, I mean, apart from those results, sometimes they look very well organised, but I, I think they're just, mm. they were so intense on pressing that if it does kind of collapse a little bit it collapses completely that said I'm not sure they have been pressing as much this season when I've seen them this season I've been a little bit confused about what they're trying to do to be honest so um yeah he's he's been there a long time am I right in saying he's the third longest serving after Klopp and Guardiola that's off the top of my head but um yeah managers don't last long these days no so very true no wins in September for Rafael's Huddle with at St Mary's uh, and then they began October with that home defeat to Everton Duncan it would be nice, I guess, to go out on a 9-0. You know, he's, he survived too. <laughs> maybe maybe in the law of football it would be like, well, the, the third 9-0 is what gets you, no matter who you are. Third 9-0 is a dangerous scoreline. Hmm. It's a shame as well, because we're just getting into the kind of season when Hasnett will wear those creepy gloves again. And I, <laughs> I always feel that's uh, one, of the, one of the worst sartorial choices in the Premier League. How do you? Which was scarier, his or Vincent Tan's? 
<laughs> All right, I think Vincent Tan, like, you know, being in a position of power at a club has a certain... Right. Well, Vincent Tan obviously introduced the concept of red being lucky uh, and then also ushered in the longest period of blue teams dominating title wins in the country's history. So, <laughs> backfired. Certainly did. Uh, speaking of blue and red, what do you think, Michael? At the end of this weekend, will City be top of the table, having beaten Saints and seen Arsenal drop points against Liverpool? I think Arsenal are playing really well at the moment. I, I do think they're quite strong favourites against Liverpool, which probably haven't said for a while. Um, so yeah, I'd probably just about back Arsenal to stay top for another week, yeah. Just about back, back Arsenal. All right. Let's see what uh, Michael Duncan and Jack feel about Chelsea now on back-to-back wins under Graham Potter and other topics too next This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Sterling knows he's got Reese James over if he waits. He did wait. Nice and patient. 3 0. All right. Chelsea, Wednesday night, 3 0 against Milan. Next up, Chelsea will be facing the other Premier League side to sack their manager this season at the time of recording. Wolves. Hmm, that's Saturday, 3 o'clock. Chelsea looked good against Milan. Well, the first thing to say is I was really disappointed with Milan. I think, you know, given all the excitement about their form in Italy and I know they were handicapped somewhat by injuries Teo Hernandez was a massive miss they really lacked something on that flank I think the keeper as well no absolutely but just bullied and out muscled kind of all over the pitch really I think Chelsea showed a few signs of kind of Potterish play pressing with intensity and and Milan just couldn't really live with them I suppose and so I would in the same way that I would take Liverpool's improvement midweek with a pinch of salt. I would, I would advise the same with Chelsea somewhat. Having said that, there were, you know, there were good signs here and there. I thought Rhys James, again, looked very good with the freedom to get forward. Fantastic finish for the third goal. Um, and, yeah, I, I think there are small signs that there could be something happening at Chelsea that although I wow small again, signs a 3-0 win against Milan Jack you're a, you're a tough crowd what do you think Michael um well I'm going to be an even tougher crowd I thought both sides Ooh. were really poor I wasn't impressed with Chelsea at all I thought the goals that they scored just came from massive Milan errors I mean the first half they couldn't defend set pieces at all the second goal I mean Milan's centre-backs just stuck so tightly to their opponents they got dragged all over the pitch I can't work out what anyone's doing for the second goal. They're just all over the place. And there was a mistake for the third as well. But I must say, I thought Chelsea's passing in the first half was really poor. Koulibaly looked like he had his boots on the wrong feet. Chilwell, I thought, was poor. Loftus-Cheek, I think, just when he when he has the whole play ahead of him, I don't think he makes the right decisions. And Aubameyang, of course, got a goal. But I still think his link play for a, a top-class centre-forward is, is really poor. So... Yeah, I mean, they won 3-0 and obviously three big points considering that the nature of the Champions League group. But for Chelsea against Milan, I was amazed how, how poor the quality was throughout that game, to be honest. All right. Well, the return leg uh, will be next week. All four teams in that group currently within just two points of each other with Salzburg leading the way. Uh, Aubameyang getting goals in back-to-back games now. Reese James with a goal and an assist. Have some of that, Trent. Uh, Wesley Fofana with the other goal, but the excitement over that tempered very, very much by him departing Stamford Bridge on crutches after what looked like a very serious injury. You see that so often, a player who goes down with a, a knee problem and then attempts to continue. As soon as it happened, I just thought, well, just just go off now. You're already winning. Uh, you've got good enough defenders on the bench against a you know, pretty average side that can you know, shut up shop, get Aspilicueta on. And the fact that he tried to play on twice, actually, within space of five, ten minutes, I thought was, uh, yeah, 
completely needless, especially as, as it, it wasn't, you know, a bang on the knee. It was a, a twisting motion when he put his foot down, yeah. And also in the era of five subs from the club's perspective, it's not like the manager should be like, well, come on, we want you to play on. Don't want to waste an early sub. You've got enough subs to do it. Yeah, I completely agree. Mm. Saturday then, it's Wolves for Chelsea. Wolves who, after some uh, thrilling talk of Midlands managerial legend and cabbage collector Steve Bruce, now have seemingly settled on the less exotic Julian Lopetegui, who, as we heard earlier, has just been binned by Sevilla, but had previously done a terrific job for them uh, when the, the, the squad wasn't being sort of sold off under his under his feet. But now it's coaches Steve Davis and James Collins who will be in uh, in charge for the game at Stamford Bridge. What, what are their prospects? Oh, and how excited are you about Diego Costa coming back to Stamford Bridge? Very much so. He actually looked all right last week. I mean, he's, you know, he's not super mobile, but he still knows, knows how to operate in the penalty area. Um, and I think... He'll relish coming up against Chelsea, and if, as Michael was saying, if they are as kind of, you know, slow as as they were midweek, then he's got a chance. I mean, the counter to that is in his this week's comparison. Uh, Wolves have currently scored as many Premier League goals this season as Miguel Almiron, which is is that good in October? Doesn't seem good. So yeah, they've not won a league game at Stamford Bridge since the Paul Daniels Magic Show started in the late seventies. So um, is that right? <laughs> How many goals have they scored? Not a lot. (laughs) Lovely, lovely stuff. (laughs) Lovely stuff. Will they pull something out of their their hat, though, for this? I do read that they are unbeaten in their last four meetings with Chelsea. But as you say, only one win in the last 15. They're the lowest scorers in the Premier League, of course. Would Diogo Costa, too, find the back of the net? Would he celebrate? Oh, I think so. I think of all the players in world football likely to celebrate against the former club, I think he'd, uh, yeah, he'd probably mm. run down the road and find Antonio Conte and celebrate in front of his face, I think. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Wolves, they've got, they got a big problem up front, of course, which is why they brought in Costa. But now they've got a problem at the back as well, because they had Nathan Collins was out suspended last weekend, so they played Ruben Neves at the back, which was an interesting mm. experiment. He got a booking within mm. about 15 minutes. And that was his fifth of the season in eight games. Yeah. So I was amazed by that. So he's out as well. So I honestly don't know who they're going to play at centre-back. Kilman and someone else. Who is it? I think I'm right in saying that Johnny, you know, tiny Johnny, also played centre-back last week in a back three. So even before Neves was out. <laughs> M- meanwhile, Connor Cody's marshalling the best defence in the Premier League. So... Mm. Michael, you mentioned Antonio Conte. Meanwhile, his Spurs side are going to be down at Brighton a little bit later on that afternoon. Brighton, of course, the club that uh, Graham Potter ditched for his fancy new Kings Road bow. Uh, Spurs, meantime, the one Premier League side that didn't win midweek. They had that nil-nil at Eintracht Frankfurt. Perhaps no shame in taking a point away at the Europa League champions. But after their disappointment against Sporting and after the 3-1, above all, in the North London derby, a, a bit underwhelming, this this kind of run of results. Yeah, they are struggling in terms of results and in terms of performances as well. I think the way that they play, they kind of rely on having two or three moments in transition or with quick passing moves. And when just one or two of those passes falls down, obviously the whole move falls down. And I think Tottenham's whole game plan falls down. I think that was the case at the Emirates. I thought their passing was really, really bad from Lloris uh, in goal to Son. I thought could have played Kane in a couple of times and didn't uh, do so. But they are lacking, I think they're just lacking connection at the moment between the lines. And I must say, I I really like, obviously Son's got a great record. I think Richarlison's a good signing. But when Kulusevski's not playing, I think they're just such a worse team. I think he, he brings something completely different to the other two. He's good in tight spaces. He, he's good at drifting inside and acting almost as a attacking midfielder or a playmaker, I suppose. Um, I'm not sure he's going to be fit for this weekend and they don't really have a, an obvious replacement for him. But uh, yeah, Kulusevski, I think, at the moment is their most important player. Some worrying stats about Spurs on the road. They only only picked up one win so far in six away matches and no Spurs player has scored an open play in their last four games away from the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. This one is going to be at the Amex in Brighton. It's an Italian manager derby, of course, with uh, Roberto Di Zerbi now in charge of the Seagulls. 
He didn't have a good record with Sassuolo against uh, Conte's Inter, winless in four meetings, but that was very much then. Now, with Brighton, what tactically, you know, what do we expect from De Zerbi based on a massive 90 minutes so far at Anfield? I thought that the key thing really was that he didn't change that much. I mean, they've been playing so well under Potter. It was a relatively similar shape. Um, I think Estupinan was the only change, I think I'm right in saying, down the left flank. So, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the main story would be Trossard getting in amongst the goals, but I'm not sure that was a, a tactical thing. I think it's probably a, a compliment to Potter that so far he's uh, he's looked to continue with that system. I mean, you can imagine Brighton having quite a lot of the ball in this. I mean, Spurs are allowing nearly almost 16 shots a game, um, which is the highest rate they've ever allowed in recorded Premier League history. So since like 03, 04. And you can, it makes sense because they're trying to you know bring teams on and then counter against them. But as Michael's saying, it's not quite working at the moment. So um, yeah, I, I think Brighton, probably the favourites for this. I think I think this could be the most interesting game actually, just tactically. I think they play almost a similar system with a three, but then the fact that Brighton form or so far form like a box in midfield, I mean that's where Tottenham really have been exposed in terms of competing in the centre of the pitch. So I'm really looking forward to this game. It's um, the only televised game on Saturday, isn't it, in the Premier League? So um, yeah, it's also in that half five slot, which we know <laughs> empirically is high quality. So yeah. Mm. A treat. So fruitful. So fruitful. Brighton currently fourth in the Premier League. They are three points behind Spurs. So could see uh, could see them overtake Antonio Conte's side. They have beaten Spurs in each of the last three seasons as well. The Seagulls. So hmm, interesting. Moving on, I'm I'm extra intrigued by Sunday evening's Everton Man United. Is it because of the unusual start time, possibly? Is it the sensation that the much maligned Frank Lampard might get one over Eric here? What what, what do you think? I'm personally quite sceptical about Everton's improvement. I think their results so far this season kind of sum up why football can be difficult to analyse in the sense that in all eight games, um, there hasn't been more than a single goal between the two sides. Yeah, it's just fine margins every week. And you look at the expected goals, I mean... Defensively, it's interesting. Uh, Duncan mentioned they have the best defensive record in the league in terms of goals conceded, but they've got the third or fourth most or highest expected goals against, which Mm. suggests that the goalkeepers are doing well and the opposition strikers are missing quite a lot of chances. So, I mean, they're certainly playing better than they were a few weeks ago, um, but I'm not quite convinced that this has been a significant improvement. Okay, are you convinced by the significant improvement for Manchester United? I know you you, you stand for... For Ralph Ragnick, uh, so famously, how, how do you feel about his replacement? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously they couldn't have got much worse, although they did try with that defeat to, to Brentford. Um, I thought they're really poor actually against City. I know it's the obvious thing to say because they conceded six goals, but I just don't know what they're trying to do without the ball. To be honest, I thought they, I just allowed City into their own third so easily, bypassed in midfield. I don't think they really made any proper attempt to press out the pitch. So. Yeah, uh, a mixed bag so far. But I agree, this is quite an interesting game. And uh, yeah, Sunday night is a bit of a novelty, I suppose. I wonder whether it could be finally time for Casemiro to to make his way into the Manchester United side. I, th- I thought the decision not to play him against City was very misguided, particularly given that, you know, the other two midfielders were essentially number 10s. And I know, I know Ericsson can play deeper, but physically he's not the most imposing against Everton I think that that will be a factor because you know Everton have got Onana and Gay alongside Iwobi in midfield and their kind of power and energy I think will present a challenge to Manchester United if uh, Ten Hag doesn't add a little bit more manpower to that area so uh, yeah I think this could be Casemiro o'clock finally. Michael meantime in midfield terms what about Alex Iwobi? And his uh, transformation to kind of Everton's ideal number eight. Who, who saw that one coming, eh? Genius move <laughs> from Frank. Yeah, I wrote an article three years ago saying I think he should play centrally. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I just think he's always been a player who has been slightly miscast. I think he, he kind of plays, he's at home narrower and deeper than what he was considered to be, which was a winger. He's never been spectacular. He's never been a great assister or goal scorer. Um, but he's always been quite intelligent. He plays subtle passes that are quite effective. And 
I think uh, players like that belong in the centre. So obviously Lampard himself was uh, maybe the best number eight in the world at his peak and uh, saw saw those qualities in him. And yeah, mm. that definitely worked. All right. Call him Alex. He will be perhaps from now on. Duncan, sorry. No, I was just going to say that one of the reasons that Wobie's been so good this season is that he has actually added assists now as well. He's got three in his last four games. So for the first time in his career, he's kind of got a real end product as well, which I think is why, is why he's really standing out and um, probably you know could be a, a pivotal player against United with their you know, up and down midfield. Absolutely. United have only won one of their last seven Premier League meetings with Everton and they're going to be coming off a trip to Cyprus where they are taking on Amunia Nicosia in the Europa League. Mm. I mean, without wanting to go on too much about the kickoff time, I thought this was one of those <laughs> games that had to be like early on, a, like really early on a Saturday because it was like potential crowd trouble kind of stuff. Maybe Is I'm it wrong. Maybe Everton Man United. I thought that was one of those. Maybe it was Everton Man City that was a bit of a thing. But I think the earliest kickoff ever in Premier League history is eleven o'clock, and it was a Man City. Everton game and it was because it was some Chinese company had bought TV company had paid for it or something so they put it on really early so it was you know a reasonable time there maybe some Australian broadcaster has bought this one maybe <laughs> but like seeing goalkeepers with you know trying to shield a low winter sun it was like right. Sander Vestavert always seemed like he was doing that it's just not right <laughs> so it's seven o'clock on a Sunday is fine because it's going to be dark Under and the, the atmosphere will be good yeah, yeah. magnificent Okay. Will Chris play? Will he play, Jack? Uh, Chris being Ronaldo? Yep. <laughs> um, didn't realise you were on such familiar terms. Uh, no, I don't. I wouldn't have thought so. I, oh, uh, you know, I, I think as long as Ten Hag has the conviction and the authority to leave him out, I don't. I don't mm. see a good tactical reason why. Why who would include him at this stage? Especially, you know, away from home, um, in a, in a game that United might fancy, you know, winning more in transitions than in possession. Would it disrespect his career? It could be the last time he ever gets a chance to play at Goodison Park. Yeah. So. There you go. All right. Well, next up, oh, a very special on this day and the other fixtures this weekend. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. 6th of October, right? And on this day, in 2001, David Beckham scored that last-minute equaliser against Greece that qualified England for the World Cup and cemented his role as a national hero. For, for context, as there are probably, well, 21-year-olds who won't have been born when this happened, this was about as boys' own as it got. That's certainly a reference there. They'll understand at 21 years old. Uh, 93rd minute it was of England against Greece at Old Trafford. England needed to at least draw with Greece to automatically qualify, but Greece were leading 2-1. Oh, my word. In the 93rd minute, England get a free kick around 30 yards out, up steps Bex at Old Trafford with the World Cup on the line. Boom. and he deserves the goal because Beckham has virtually played Greece on his own. Michael, where were you when you saw that? Um, I was in a pub in a, a little village called Claygate in Surrey. Prove it. You can't have been in a pub going age at that point. No, you? I wasn't. I was allowed. I was allowed. It was early. It was. That must have been about Saturday 5pm, I think. I think I had to leave by 7pm or something like that. Uh, it was very smoky. That's the thing I remember about that pub, which, of course... Youngsters these days would be very confused by. Mm. Um, but it I actually did not. Article... Oh, go on. At three o'clock. Even okay, even at what? But it was a Saturday, and... wasn't it? Yeah, live oh. on BBC One. 
The web of lies yeah. is suddenly stretching, mm. isn't it? What's no, this that, village that, again? That, this fictional village and midsummer murders that you that's a, that supports my point even more. I had to be out by a certain time. Right, having youngsters Might in the pub up until o'clock. five p.m. Yeah, I think five is the time. yeah that is um, the five o'clock but, watershed but, they called it. He's back wriggled to, out. Back to the back to the point. Yeah. Uh, I did an article on Beckham's performance in this game a couple of years ago for The Athletic in our Reconsidered series. Okay. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. It's quite interesting because he takes about, I think, 10 direct free kicks in the game. Huh. And actually the pattern of them is all quite interesting. And I think plays into why the goalkeeper was so deceived. Because if you watch the free kick, the goalkeeper, he kind of just like crouches down, doesn't he? He doesn't really try and save it. And I think he's basically been bamboozled by the previous three kicks. Bamboozled by Bex. Right. Like a bowler doing a slower or quick one to mix it up. That's exactly the, the thing I said in the article. Exactly yeah. what I said in the article. What John Motson said was that Beckham had virtually played Greece on his own. Of course, he still continues to do so much for the country, the country now being, though, a Qatar. <laughs> anyway, 6th of just... October. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Just one thing that when I looked up this game to refresh my memory and I laughed out loud thinking of Michael because uh, Paul Scholes was, was booked in the eighth minute for what's described as a reckless late tackle on <laughs> Karastatis. And I was like, ah, yeah, maybe that does sound possible. Well, if we hadn't qualified for that World Cup, I think it would have been Scholes' fault. I think he made the foul that led to Haman's free kick. And then at the tournament itself... We went out, of course, to the Ronaldinho free kick. I mm. think that was a skulls foul as well. I, I, I need to check that first one. But right. I think if you go through the history of Manchester United and England, whenever they lose, it's because Paul Scholes has, has considered a free kick 25 yards out. Wow. Who was a more rubbish midfielder, him or Zidane? Well, Zidane mm. was a better player, so I suppose you'd have to say skulls by that measure. Skulls of okay. Manchester. Yeah. We're going to have to do a Michael Cox Iconoclast podcast series and do it soon. Right now, though, let me say that 6th of October is also the anniversary of another heartwarming event. 2020, 6th of October, it was a Tuesday that Mesut Ozil agreed to pay the full wages of mascot Gunasaurus. Arsenal, you'll recall, had made him redundant because, uh, air quotes, pandemic but Mesut Ozil was having none of that. He stepped in and out of his own pocket, he paid Jerry Key. I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Jerry Key? Jerry Key's wages. Jerry Key was the man who... Sorry about this. Jamiroquai. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> 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 he was the fella who had been wearing, had been essentially Gunasaurus for 27 years and and then just ruthlessly... I mean, like a big kind of meteorite streaking across his sky, Arsenal, made him extinct. He's back in the role now, though, although it's a bit awkward because there's 27 people being Gunnosaurus. There's a roster of them. Oh, sorry, there's not 27. I got confused with 27 <laughs> <Yeah>. What? <laughs> I got confused with the 27 years. But no, there's not. There's, but there is a roster of people. I was thinking 27. But, yeah, that's... if you got them all out at the same time, that'd be amazing. It'd be like Jurassic Park. I mean, slightly budget version. Well, you'd, himself... you'd, think, you'd think they would just share the same costume, and out they would have a costume each. Why not? Just you'd want it. You own one, wouldn't you? You'd want a squad. Grim. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially midsummer days. Those will, those will get sweaty. Uh, well, May, you know, May days. Uh, Ozil himself, ironically, was uh, also subsequently made redundant, both by Arsenal and then Fernabachi. You remember he went to Fernabachi, his dream move. But he is still in Turkey. He's currently, I was going to say playing for Basak Shahir, the president's club, uh, but he's only had 21 minutes so far this season. Mm. I mean, it does show how far Arsenal come in two years, because like two years ago, essentially, their star midfielder was playing them off on Twitter quite regularly and like outwitting them <laughs> and uh, yeah things have got a bit better it, yeah. it was quite funny that Gunnosaurus thing because I think it showed the difference in kind of how we talk about football and how people involved talk about football because we just found the Gunnosaurus thing really hilarious but I remember both Wenger and Paul Merson being asked about it on TV in kind of a jokey way and both were, were genuinely quite appalled by mm. what had happened 
And uh, Merson in particular was just on fantastic form. He's part of it now. I mean, there'll be 30 year old people, 40 year old fans who have grown up with that dinosaur. And yeah, disappointing. I I think it's poor by Arsenal. I really do. Great dinosaur conversation about Gunnosaurus. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, the, the, the picture of the, the team stood head down in the centre circle with Gunnosaurus also doing it is one of the most iconic football images I think that there is. Well, anyway, back to the football. Monday night, last Monday night, this is Leicester beat Forest 4-0. Previously bottom of the table, Leicester. They've now been replaced there by hapless Nottingham Forest, who've lost five in a row, conceding 18 goals in that run. Steve Cooper afterwards saying, we're not a team. You'll have your own views on why that would be. He's still in charge, though, for, or it looks like he will be, for Monday night's, uh, next Monday night's clash, which will be at, at home to Aston Villa. Meanwhile, Leicester, with a bit of a spring in their steps, stepper now, perhaps, will be at Bournemouth. What do you think about this game? James Madison on fire on, on, on Monday night. Jack? Yeah, I mean, this links back into positional changes in that Madison is it's almost more impressive that he's doing this from a, a position that I don't think is is the perfect fit for his skill set. Like Madison is the kind of player who, I don't know, if he was born 30 years ago in Pisa or something, a Serie A team would have built the whole side around him. He's like he's, he's got a fantastic classic number 10 skill set, in my opinion, you know, through balls, flicks, free kicks, corners. Um, not, you know, not necessarily a cyborg athlete but very creative and he's doing it this season basically from the right flank um kind of he does get inside a lot obviously but you know the way he's kind of adapted to that and got the best out of it out of himself in recent months I've been really impressed by um and yeah I mean his free kick especially was just fantastic I think everyone expected him to go to the other side and to have the uh, the presence of mind to to go to the far post and to place it so perfectly, uh, yeah, great re- reward for a great performance. He could have had he could have had four assists easily because Vardy missed two good headed chances and uh, Jewsbury Hall put a header wide after about three minutes from a great cross. So it it, it could have been even more spectacular. Mm. Oh, pretty good win though, certainly for the team. Patson Dacker with a lovely goal, the the, the back heel, which was I think the fourth in that run. As the Foxes ended a streak of 10 Premier League games without a clean sheet as well and got off the bottom of the table. They're at Bournemouth, who are themselves on a four-game unbeaten run under their interim manager, Gary O'Neill. Forrest, as I mentioned, are going to be against Aston Villa on Monday night. As I say, it looks like uh, Cooper will still be in charge for this game. The club appointing a new sporting director, Filippo Giraldi, on Wednesday. He's a former Watford sporting uh, director, that's comforting. Mm. Mm. Yeah, should help him get uh, get some new signings in. <laughs> Forest are breaking a lot of things, most notably their own chances of staying in the Premier League. But um, they have let in a goal from outside the box in each of their last six Premier League games, which is the longest run in Premier League history. So, <laughs> I mean, have they not heard of XG? Do they not understand? Sort it out. Sort it out. Villa are currently two points above. At the bottom three. So, I mean, w- without yeah. wanting to get too fixated on kickoff times, which I know I yes. have mentioned a few times. It's <laughs> <laughs> twice in a row Forrest have been on, on a mm. Monday night. Mm-hmm. And I think of Villa as the classic, the most classic Monday night game. Mm. And I'm always intrigued by that because it's always sides who haven't been in Europe, or sorry, who aren't in Europe because you can't put a, a team in Europe on a Monday night unless they're in Europe, I suppose. But it's also got to be teams that have got a big, you know, will get decent viewing figures. So a Forest yeah. now considered as kind of the new Aston Villa in that respect. Or do they just have a quota to fill in terms of who they make their selections from? Yeah, we it's are in Quotaville. It's partly that, of course. But, but I, there's something on the... You, Duncan, have you done analysis on which sides get put on Monday night? I bet Villa, Newcastle... Yeah, Villa, Villa Newcastle up there. Palace as well. I mean, you look at this weekend's fixes and Palace leads. If that had been on Monday night, I think everyone would have just nodded and gone, yeah, fair enough. So, mm. yeah. Are you excited by Norris, uh, Nottingham Forest Villa? Is that a draw for you, Michael? I mean, a draw in terms of making you want to watch it rather than say... It was a 5-5 draw a few seasons ago. Um, I Personally, I think Forest have still got a little bit of that 
new team, big team coming back up, Cache and Villa. Mm-hmm. You know, they love showing Villa, Steven Gerrard and stuff, but they're two teams in not very good form and under a lot of pressure. So, um, which can make for a good good Monday night game. You know, a few good red to, cards. I would be really, really excited about this fixture if it was the early 1980s. <laughs> okay. You would be what age, though, Michael? You wouldn't be excited well, about anything. Minus, you? minus five. You'd be something. in a pub somewhere. Probably, like, yeah. Smoking tabs. Hmm. Uh, also, this weekend, Crystal Palace taking on Leeds. That's Sunday, 2 o'clock. Not sure how you feel about that, Michael. West Ham against Fulham is also Sunday, 2 o'clock. But only one of them will be televised. And Newcastle face Brentford Saturday at three. Also not available to UK-based viewers. Which one will you miss the most? Which one is on telly? I don't know. Is it Palace Leeds? Palace Leeds is confirmed. So you can see Palace Leeds with Jesse Marsh back on the touchline, which is box office. Palace. A lot of marshland in South London, so he'll be at home. Um, (laughs) Palace, only goal difference outside of the relegation zone right now. Although, to be fair to them, they were a bit stiff by the referees last week and they have played four of last season's top five in their opening seven. In their seven games? Have they only played seven games? Oh, that's why they're down there, because they've got a game less than everybody. Well, I was just thinking of Leeds and Selhurst Park, and obviously it wasn't against Crystal Palace, confusingly, but obviously Tony Yeboah, one of his two great Premier League goals came on this on this pitch against Wimbledon. Hmm. Um, will we see a goal as, as good as that in this one? Probably not. But something to think about or watch on YouTube if the game's bad. Okay. Meanwhile, very much in the tree falling in the forest category, we've got uh, West Ham against Fulham and Newcastle. Brentford, Jack. Yeah, they're definitely they're definitely happening. They are happening. Uh, I suppose for Fulham, it's mm-hmm. you know Mitrovic dependence factor it's not clear whether he'll be back for this but Carlos Vinicius he of a brief stint at Spurs and used to be a centre-back till he was in his 20s I would suggest is possibly not quite at the level of Mitrovic if Mm. if they're missing their talisman so yeah I think if that's the case uh, they're going to struggle for a little while. Right while you're on YouTube by the way on Sunday do check out uh, a highlight from Last time Fulham went to the London Stadium a couple of seasons back, when they they had a, a last minute, I say last minute, it was the 98th minute, the chance to equalise against the Hammers. Adamola Lookman stepped up to the penalty spot with uh, quite dramatic consequences. Mm. Newcastle-Brentford, these two teams drew 3-3 at St James's last season. That sounds like fun. Callum Wilson is back, he's scoring three goals and four appearances. Ivan Tony up against his old club. What do you think? Well, Newcastle are in that strange position where they drew so many games and then they won last week. So now their record looks pretty good. And if they win this one as well, they'll obviously you know, be in a pretty healthy league position and will have only lost one game all season. And that was a controversial one at, at Anfield. So mm. um, it's hard to, it's quite hard to grasp how Eddie Howe's doing because like, they are making progress, but maybe not as much as they would have hoped, but then maybe they are. So I find Newcastle possibly the the hardest team to get a, a kind of sense of this season. Right. Um, only two wins so far this season, and yet with a victory this weekend, they could be in the top four. They're only three points behind Brighton. Remarkable. They're in that they're in that funny stage of a a nouveau riche club in that you watch them one week and it's you know Bruno Guimaraes setting up Alexander Isak, and then you catch the end of the game a week later and you, it's like Jacob Murphy swapping past with Jamal Lewis. Mm. So it, it's kind of that interim period when they've got three or four, maybe five kind of players of the quality that will take them into into newer heights. And yet they've still got, you know, what is essentially a, uh, a lower half of the table squad in many respects. So it's, it's interesting to watch. Mm. If only you could. If only you could. Uh, <laughs> Michael Cox's beloved blackout rule, isn't it? Yeah. Is that why you're interested in another kickoff time? Don't get him talking about yeah, kickoff yeah, times yeah. again. That's kickoff <laughs> times are really important, honestly. Well, I mean, they make a big difference, as as you know more than anyone, Duncan. They make wow. a big difference. What, what's mm. your view on the M- on MLS, where they sometimes just delay it ten minutes to, you know, you've seen that. What's so that? often, often the kickoff will be actually ten minutes after the stated kickoff time because they'll. 
you know, they'll get a few adverts in before the game and stuff like that. So wow. it's quite hard to keep a track of. Hmm. That is that's not good. So that's like when you when you're watching Sky and they say, Oh, at the weekend mm. Man United Liverpool will be on three thirty on Sky Sports One rather than the actual kickoff time. Right. Mm. That that annoys me in itself. So an extra ten minutes on top of that, that would be just disastrous. Mm. Mm. Well, ironically, all this talk of kickoffs, we're very much at the final whistle <laughs> of this Toby Football Show. We are scheduled to be back on Monday with our thoughts on the weekend. Uh, in the meantime, we were talking on Monday uh, last Monday about the Athletics uh, special podcast on Taking the Knee, which features Carl Anker, Dan Barnes and Roshane Thomas. Uh, and if you stick around after the music stops on this one, we'll have a little excerpt from that. If you're interested, very nice. Uh, for now, though, it's a goodbye uh, from us all here. Many thanks to Jack Lang. Many thanks to Duncan Alexander and Michael Cox and producer Charlie. And you, the listener, do have a great weekend and look forward to speaking to you soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. It's important to note that this is this is a societal issue. This is about things that are bigger than sport. But through the prism that we view it, we got to view, and you guys particularly, got to first-hand view what it's like to see football's response to this and to see how this issue was dealt with by sport. So to see something like this and to see so many teams and players incorporate this gesture and try and show a level of solidarity towards trying to stamp out racial discrimination. I mean, what was it like to see that? Because I just don't think we've seen anything on this scale before, right? Me and Carl being one of the few black journalists at press boxes, I was phoning Carl asking, you know, what's your thoughts on this, bro? Do you feel like this should happen? Do you think that should happen? So we're having regular dialogue in terms of what's going on as well, because for us being young reporters, this is something new for us in terms of what we're seeing on the playing field. And with us being one of the few black journalists in the press box, well, in my experience, I'm not sure Carl's the same, but I had white journalists coming to me and asking, do you think this is the right thing? So that also showed the impact of what was happening on the pitch. I also agree with Rashani that I had much more senior people in the world of football ask for me my opinion on the, taking the knee. It made me happy and sad. It, it was good that people who have been in football journalism and football media for as long as I've been alive were going, I am not the expert. Carl, I'm going to ask you to take the lead here. Or Rashane, I'm going to ask you to take the lead here. That made me happy. It also made me quite concerned that I was seeing people in their 40s and their 50s who've been in football media and in sports media for 35 years going, what is going on about black people being discriminated? Uh, and it was one of those real sort of, how do you not know this? How do you not have a stronger grasp of how systematic racism can affect black people in sports? I was once speaking to a very, very knowledgeable football person. We basically came to an agreement that at a certain level, not understanding how racism works makes you bad at your job, right? And I think when people say, why do we need to do this in a sporting sense? There's, a, there's an old quote that often gets misattributed to Abraham Lincoln, which is essentially people are a lot more protective of their interests than they often are of their rights. And at a time of a pandemic where there was no cinema trips, very little outside socialising, but football was on, it was very important to do a gesture like that because for a lot of people, football was their escape or their release or their one thing outside of work. And I can, I can understand that if you were not thinking too much about police brutality and systematic racism affecting black people, you might be a bit annoyed that you're one or three hours in your weekend where you're not thinking about the stresses of the world. Someone's making a very overt, here are the stresses of the world and how they affect black people. Would you like to help? But also I think the fact that we did that over and over and over and over and over again in what most people consider recreational playtime going, I know it's your playtime, but for two or three minutes, can we have a moment to just think about how systematic racism affects black people? That was really powerful. One of the more consistent criticisms of taking the knee from people who I do not agree with politically is that it's a meaningless gesture. It's forcing politics down our throat. And to that I say, 
it was never meant to be a meaningless gesture. It was meant to be a very powerful gesture. And unfortunately, due no fault of its own, but taking the knee became quite muddled and quite difficult. There were repeated instances where I was watching football games on television on, on UK broadcasters and I'm listening to commentators saying, here are players taking the knee in their stand against racism in all forms. I'm going, no, 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 no. Explain specifically why this gesture came about. Police brutality against black people, racial inequality, systematic racism, not racism on an individual scale, but it does occur on an individual scale and that is often what people are most adept at understanding. But we, the reason why people were so shocked in 2020, the reason why people felt the need to do something, the reason why, I mean, even the misguided attempts to, to post black squares on Instagram, uh, the reason why those things occurred was because it became very, very clear that systematic racism and violence was occurring towards black people, and we believe enough was enough. The Athletic.